Anyone remember like little decoder wheels and decoder rings? Weren't those just awesome? As a little boy, I'm like, oh yeah, the cereal boxes, and you tear apart the box before it's empty, and mom has some words to say about that, and, um, and you're, you're decoding these messages. I, I remember going with, with actually a few of you to um, Disneyland when Indiana Jones first opened, and they, they used to give out, I don't know if anyone remembers, they used to give out little decoder cards. Remember those? And, and no. <laughs> Didn't that just open like two years ago? <laughs> okay, so it opened a long time ago, but, but they used to give out little decoder cards, and as you're walking in through those tunnels, if you've been on Indiana Jones, there's all these little symbols on the wall. You know those actually say something? You can sit there and, and stand there and decode them, and, and the line was really long at the beginning, so you had time to do that, and you could decode it, and at the end you're like, I know what it says. Yeah, you don't. There's a sense of pride, isn't there? That you're finding out what this secret knowledge is, the secret wisdom from Indiana Jones. Well, okay, maybe not wisdom. Um, the secret message from Indiana Jones. And sometimes that's how we can come to the Word of God and truth. Boy, boy if, I, if I just had the secret, if I just had the secret decoder ring for the Bible, maybe I could figure out what it really says to me. And we can sometimes look at others and say, oh man, they really understand the Bible and I could never understand the Bible. And, and this whole idea of God's wisdom becomes this mystical thing that we're just not sure how to get. And, excuse me. And we can be proud if we think we do understand something or we can look at and elevate people that we think do. That's a little bit of what was going on at the church at Corinth. They had different teachers and, and the culture, and we've been talking about how the worldly culture was trying to squeeze into the church. And the culture there, like we've talked about, was that all these teachers would come and they would present themselves as wise and having the secret wisdom or having the secret decoder ring. And so then they would get followers that would follow them to try to understand the secret. And that's what was coming into the church as they were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Well, you guys all have it wrong. I am of Christ. And we had all these divisions happening in the church. The thing is, though, every one of us has the key to understanding God's wisdom. Every believer, we specify, every believer has the key to understanding God's wisdom that God has given us in dwelling us, and that's the Holy Spirit. And there doesn't have to be a secret decoder ring. There doesn't have to be this mystical sense of some can understand, some can't. Because every believer, not just special ones, not different classes, every believer has the Holy Spirit inside that can help decipher and explain and illuminate God's wisdom. That's where we want to go today. As we, as we go through Paul's arguments, he's going to end there with the Spirit. But I want to start there and say that's what this chapter is about. The Spirit of God giving God's wisdom to us. Not man with some special background and some special ability being able to tell God's word, the wisdom of God's Word, but the Holy Spirit. And so as we talk today, the question that I'll start with and the same question I'll end with is, are we led by the Holy Spirit? Are we in tune with the Holy Spirit? Do we even realize that He is living inside of us there to equip us to live godly lives in an ungodly world. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
And we'll see, again, we're still in the middle of Paul dealing with divisions. And he, he dealt with it in chapter 1, in the middle of chapter 1. And then last week, he brought everyone to the same focus, the cross of Christ. And this week, he talks about the wisdom of God and how, again, the cross of Christ, the message of the Gospel, is the wisdom of God. It is what holds us together and how we can be unified. Because it is of more value than all else. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Starting at verse 1. And we'll start with verses 1-5. through And there's three major sections in this chapter. And we'll just take them sort of paragraph by paragraph. And, and in this first paragraph we read, And I, when I came to you, brothers... And Paul is talking about here his first trip to Corinth. It was during his second missionary journey. And he had gone through Macedonia and he had gone to Athens and then came down to Corinth. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And we have to understand what, what he's meaning by that. And, and I've given you some background of the sophists or the, the wise men and the orators that would come in and talk. And, and they would come into town and, and their policy was to, to make friends through flattery, through lofty speech, through saying nice things about people. You know, make friends and influence people and then they could teach them. In fact, a, a couple of things that were written, a, a, a traveling speaker would arrive in a city and follow a set of, and expected protocol of heaping praise on the city and its achievements. In using such eloquence and superior wisdom, those sophists tried to both to win an audience and draw attention to themselves. It was all about themselves. In fact, one, another individual writing at the time, although in, in a town not in Corinth, but in a town neighboring Corinth, um, Chrysostom said um, that he could address the assembly of his own city, Prusa, and he observed that in his travels he could visit the greatest cities, including Rome, and his arrival was escorted with enthusiasm. The recipients of my visits being grateful for my presence and begging me to address them and, and advise them and, and flocking about my doors from early dawn, all without my having incurred any expense or having made any contribution, with the result that all would admire me. And so this is what the city was used to. These traveling um, wise men, and, and they valued intellect, they valued wisdom, they would come and heap praises, get a following, teach, and then get money from them. When the money ran out, they'd move on. And so Paul, when he starts in, in chapter 2, verse 1, that's the background he's saying this. And I, when I came to you brothers, and I love that he uses the word brothers there, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come trying to flatter you or trick you into it. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified powerful statement of priority. He said it wasn't about man's wisdom. It wasn't about tricking you. It wasn't about doing all the right things. It's about the gospel of Christ. And that's where the power is because I don't want you to be deceived and follow something else. I want you to follow Christ. And so point number one in your notes is we need to value the power of God and the message of, of the cross over charisma. Value the power of God and the message of the cross over charisma. When we're talking about how to, how to follow godly wisdom, 
We've got to start by evaluating things through God's eyes. God doesn't care about charisma. He cares about the power of the cross. He cares about people coming to Him and hearing the Gospel. Value the power of God and the message of the cross over charisma. There's an old quote about an eloquent preacher. He can preach squirrels down from trees. I've never had that said about me. Um, I guess we don't have trees. But it was a statement that was elevating a preacher and speaking to just how, how great of a preacher he was. And that becomes dangerous. And, and Paul isn't here saying that we shouldn't be excellent, that we shouldn't strive to, to proclaim God's Word in a, in a good and, and clear way. But he's saying that can't be the goal. That can't be the focus. How do we evaluate things? As we go through this first paragraph, we've looked at verses 1 and 2, we see different examples of Paul that are worth noting, both for as we minister and as we teach, but also how do we evaluate our leaders? How do we evaluate, uh, how do we evaluate those that are teaching us? And the first thing we see there in verses 1 and 2 is Paul focused on Christ and the Gospel rather than tricks and flattery. Paul focused on Christ and the Gospel rather than tricks or flattery. This is so key in understanding Paul's heart. He could have come and been just like anyone else and gathered a following. And you could have even argued that maybe people would have heard the Gospel more. But you'll see in verse 5, they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have followed the right thing. The heart of Paul's preaching, his passion with people, was Christ and the Gospel. You can't read his letters in the New Testament without being convinced of that. It is so fun to read, and every, he just keeps inserting the gospel everywhere he can. And when he does, he starts to do doxologies and praise God and all to the glory of God. He loves the gospel. That is the heart. And if we're to evaluate things correctly and lead well, that needs to be our heart. It's not about charisma, it's about the message, not the messenger. In verse 2 there, you see, for I decided to do nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And, and I love thinking through some of the languages. And, and the Greek, they were able to be a little more specific with language than we are in English. And that word for crucified there is something that's called the perfect tense, which means it happened in the past and it still affects you today. Okay, So we have past tense, I ran to the store. Okay, This is more like, I ran to the store and I'm exhausted and about to drop dead because I'm out of shape and that's still happening today. Okay, so that, that's more the perfect. It's an ongoing action. And so when Paul says, the focus of my teaching is Christ crucified in the perfect tense, and they would have all got it, he's saying, He died for our sins and that affects every part of life even now. That's cool. Have you thought about the cross affecting every decision you make now? You know, we, we say sometimes, live in light of the cross. Well, we should. It's exactly right. How do we do that? We keep in mind God's sacrifice for us, His payment for our sin, and that reminds us that our sin was paid for and it keeps us from temptation. We keep in mind that God loved us, that even while we were yet sinners, He died for us. And that love reminds us of His presence and His continuing presence. The cross reminds us that we're, we have a new identity. 
that we're adopted into the family of God and we are no longer in the family of this world. And so it reminds us, living in light of the cross, it says, every decision I make, am I making this as one that's, that's been bought with the price? As part of a new community of believers, a new family of believers? Or am I making this decision in light of my old identities and my old allegiances? It's so rich when Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified and how you apply that to your lives today. Paul didn't want to be confused with the world. He wanted to clearly point people to Jesus Christ. So if we're to evaluate things with God's eyes, we need to see a focus on Christ and the Gospel rather than tricks and flattery. Let's add verse 3 in there as we continue to look at Paul's example and what he's saying. Verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And in a couple of notes I want to make out of these verses, the second one is Paul lived life among others. Paul lived life among others. See, as a, as a teacher of the time, they would just do their teaching and they were this elitist mentality. I'm on a pedestal. I'm not part of you. But look at verses 1 through 3. In verse 1, what does he call them? Brothers. A term that isn't just a title. A term that means we're family. In verse 2, what does he say? For I decided to know nothing, and we miss this because it's a subpoint among you. That means he was living among them. He was part of it. In fact, we know that he was working and making tents. He was living in one of their houses. Paul's like, this is me. I'm Paul. And he lived life with them instead of as an elitist in a far off place. In verse 3, you see, I was with you in weakness and in fear. And it's a minor point, just, just tracing the verses through, but it's a theme that Paul keeps coming back to with the Corinthians of brothers and unity and family. And Paul's giving us an example for how we minister. Are we with people? Among people? That's how we dispel this whole myth that man is so great or that you should follow me. Because if you're with me, if I'm with you, you're going to find out sometimes I spill my drink and sometimes I, I eat and I'm messy and some, you know, all these normal everyday lives that just strip away all of the ways we put men on pedestals. I love that about Paul's ministry. Also in verse 3, the next example from Paul is Paul ministered in humility. Not of his own power. He's aware of his weakness. When he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, he's aware that he is just a man. That this isn't his power. And, and all of that phrasing gives a humble demeanor rather than the self-confidence. And again, this is a contrast with the culture. And that's why in 1 Corinthians it's so important to understand the culture. The speakers would come in with self-confidence. and I am great and you need to follow me. Paul's saying, I came with fear and trembling. Weakness. And the word there could mean difficult circumstances. And we know from his missionary journey, he's been through it. People have tried to kill him. At Athens, where he just was, hardly any response. But primarily, this probably refers to a humble attitude. 
a humble attitude, fear and much trembling. In fact, a number of scholars feel like that's fear and much trembling before God at the task at hand. There's been all kinds of discussion of what does he mean by weakness there? Is it his illness? Is it that he's depressed? Is it that he's discouraged? I I just don't see that. I, I think the best way to view this verse is he's humble before God. And he's not seeing himself as the ultimate message. He ministered in humility. And that reminds us to minister in humility. Let's add verses 4 and 5 in. And Paul is still talking here about wisdom and pointing people to Christ. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. And he's talking about the high and lofty arguments and what they enjoyed, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And this is where he first in this chapter introduces the Holy Spirit. And that this is a demonstration of the work of the Holy Spirit. And that becomes a theme that he expands on a little bit later here. But this, what he's saying is, it's in my weakness he is made strong. It's not about me convincing people to follow Christ. It's about me presenting Christ and letting the Holy Spirit convince them to follow Christ. And through this, we see Paul in his desire to point people to Christ. Paul just views himself as a giant mirror. And whenever people look at him, he's hoping they see Christ. And you see that in verse 5, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, if I convince someone to follow Christ, and I do it through wonderful arguments and maybe pin them against the wall and say, I won't let you down until you accept Christ, you know, and we joke about it, but the, you know, persuasiveness, chances are, if I've done it, that they will walk away from Christ because they're not truly saved. But when the Holy Spirit convicts their heart and tears apart the veil of sin, and they see what God has done through the cross, and they're amazed at the sacrifice, they'll stick with it because that's true belief. doesn't mean I don't share the Gospel. But it means sometimes I share and get out of the Holy Spirit's way. This also gives me confidence to share the Gospel because I don't have to worry about what if I do it wrong. In outreach, we talked about, well, how do I transition to the Gospel? And our conclusion was, you just share the Gospel. It doesn't have to be this roundabout, convoluted transition. But share the most incredible thing in the world, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. And see what the Holy Spirit does. Paul here is saying, it's not about me. This whole section, it's not about me as a preacher. It's not about me as a minister. I, am, I, I come in weakness because in, in view of God's greatness, I am weak. And I'm going to be with you. I'm going to share the gospel with you. And we're going to see what God is doing. And the humility of this is astounding. And we must always be conscious, am I pointing people to Christ? Am I directing people to the Savior? You know, this last, this last week, a few of us had an opportunity to go down to a conference in San Diego, and it was a theology conference, and so uh, the presenters there and the people there are, are a lot of people that have written books. And one of the things that it was just really fascinating to watch 
is I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. And it was still happening today. Because you'd see a famous person, you know, maybe D.A. Carson or, or um, Mark Dever or one of the other famous people walking and you'd see like six or seven people following right behind them. It was really interesting. So much so that the guys said, hey, we could follow right behind you and be your posse. And it, No, 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 no. Oh. <laughs> and, and it wasn't the guy's fault. Just like it wasn't Paul's fault and Apollos' fault. Paul, fault and Cephas's fault. But we tend to elevate men, don't we? We tend to see men as celebrities. And I watched it this week. We still do this. And that is not from God. Because men are men, God is God, and the problem comes when we confuse the two. And we have to be careful, even in our local churches, that we don't get favorites and elevate men beyond being just men. Just messengers of the incredible grace of God and truth and wisdom of God. And those of you that are teachers, we need to be aware of that and always pointing people back to Christ. Keep a humble spirit. Speaking of one of those guys, D.A. Carson wrote, that's ironic that that's right after that story. These verses do not prohibit diligent preparation, passion, clear articulation, and persuasive presentation. Rather, they warn against any method that leads people to say, what a marvelous preacher, rather than what a marvelous Savior. Isn't that good? I pray that as we study God's Word together, you leave each week saying, what a marvelous Savior. Man, the grace, the wisdom that He gives the Holy Spirit that He gives. What an, a, a great God. And we sang about that this morning. Point number one in that first paragraph, value the power of God and the message of the cross over charisma. Make sure we're valuing the right things. We get to the next section, section number two. True maturity comes as we hear and apply God's incredible wisdom. True maturity comes as we hear and apply God's incredible wisdom. We need to seek it, chase it, grab onto it. Because God makes His wisdom available to His children. In verse 6, he starts by saying, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. And this is just a great way for Paul to start. Because remember, everyone's running around saying, I follow so-and-so, so I'm more mature. Because they have more wisdom. So he's using key phrases that the world was was infiltrating the church of wisdom and maturity, and he's defining them correctly, redefining them correctly. And he's saying, yet among the mature, those that are really mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And so Paul is coming back to what is true wisdom? What's true maturity? And it's important to know, we do need to ask the question, who are the mature here? Because either it's, it's the mature believers, so you have sort of the super elite Christians and the, the Christians that don't quite have it together, or he's talking about all Christians here. And keep in mind, in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, the context here is a comparison between what? God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. 
Those that have accepted the cross of Christ, those that have not and think it's foolishness. And so the mature here is a reference to all believers of all time. And we see that in, in verse 14 as he contra- contrasts it with the natural man, those that, someone that does not have the Spirit. And so Paul, even to a church where not everyone is acting mature, he's saying, you should be. You are mature in Christ because He's given you everything you need to be mature. Now in the next chapter, next week, he starts by saying, some of you are still babies, grow up. And so there he makes the distinction between Christians and where they're at. But here, he's saying, all believers, you're mature. You have wisdom. And wisdom, we know, is applying knowledge to everyday life. It's taking information and being able to put it into practice. And in this context, with chapter 1 and in what we just saw in verses 1-5, through five, it's putting the cross into practice in everyday life. Putting the Gospel into practice. That is God's wisdom. So yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. There is a true wisdom. There is a true maturity. It's just not what you think it is. You want to talk about wisdom? Let's talk about wisdom. And he challenges their concepts. Teachers would be viewed as more mature the more followers they had. And God is saying it's not about followers. It's about are you hearing and applying God's wisdom? It's a challenge for us. Are we seeking God's wisdom? Do we want to apply it? Do we know that there's a difference between a secular worldview and a Christian worldview? And are we striving to see what God's Word says about things instead of what we think is right or what we want to do? We want to be careful not to judge maturity like the world does. But rather, how are we applying God's truth to life? So we say it's not a, he says it's not a wisdom of this age, a worldly wisdom, or of the rulers of this age, probably the leaders of the time. Because in, down in verse 8, he talks about the rulers of the age crucifying Christ. He says those don't last. And we know that. Those of you that have seen a couple generations go by have seen worldly wisdom change. 20 years ago was a very different landscape politically and in ideology than it is now, isn't it? That should say something about whether it's wisdom. If it changes at a whim, it's not wisdom because God's wisdom lasts forever. The truly mature are those whose understanding and actions are changed by the cross. Verse 7 goes on, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. And he's using catchphrases that they were using then. He's sort of saying, but we do have a secret Dakota ring. It's not what you think though, because that's what they were all claiming. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And when we look through the New Testament, and we don't have time this morning to to dig into it, but if you look at the word mystery and what this means, it means the Gospel that can only be understood with the help of the Holy Spirit. It's hidden until the Holy Spirit reveals it. Which we, we saw last week. The cross is foolishness to those that don't believe. couple of just little things in that verse that are cool. God decreed this before the ages for our glory. 
It's a reference to the sovereignty of God, the omniscience of God. He had planned salvation from the start. He had planned Christ to come and rescue us from the start. And when it says, for our glory, that's most likely a reference to our glorification. In Romans 8, that we're glorified eventually. That's where he goes in 1 Corinthians 15. That ultimately, it leads to an incredible presence with God in heaven. In a glorified state. That's the plan. That's the wisdom of God. The verse goes on. Verse 8 and says, None of the rulers of this age understood this. He's again the same comparison. The people, the, the world can't understand God's wisdom. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Literally, the God whose essential attribute is glory. And he's saying, Wisdom here is my plan, what I am doing for you to my glory. I will bring you to Myself. I will redeem you. I will save you from your sins to My glory. And any wisdom that doesn't acknowledge His glory is a false and idolatrous wisdom. The world's wisdom won't pass away or will pass away. It won't last because it's false. But yet we chase it. And we want what we think the best of this life has to offer. God said, I'm going to glorify you in ways you can't even comprehend. Because he goes on in verse 9. But as it is written, and he quotes here loosely from Isaiah 64.4, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Isn't that a great verse? What God has prepared for you and I, for every believer who accepts Him and follows Him, is beyond our wildest dream, wild, wildest dreams and imagination. We can't even comprehend it. Why? Because His ways are higher than our ways. He is completely other, completely separate. So what should we chase after? God and eternal things or this world and things that don't satisfy and pass away? In this paragraph, Paul is challenging them to chase after God. To chase after His wisdom. To recognize I can't do it on my own. When he quotes there, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. That, that is a very... It's in the context of a very present statement. It's not just saying someday we get to go to heaven, yay. It's saying God here is with us and is giving us wisdom. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, it's all of us, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So Paul in the first two paragraphs says, Be careful what you look up to. Make sure you're evaluating things based on the cross of Christ rather than charisma. And then he says, in fact, true maturity, true wisdom comes when we seek God and His wisdom. It's not about man. And finally, he gets to sort of the culminating paragraphs of this chapter where he's been going. 
It's like, okay, let me tell you how God helps you have His wisdom. And the third point there is only the Spirit can help us see and apply God's wisdom. Only the Holy Spirit can help us see and apply God's wisdom. So we're to live by the Spirit. Recognize He is indwelling us. Recognize He is there to help with every part of life. To help us have a godly mindset rather than a worldly viewpoint. To give us different glasses in which to see everything. We don't always talk about the Holy Spirit that much for whatever reason. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. And and, and it's helpful as you look through these next verses where Paul keeps talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit. Say, what's he saying about the Holy Spirit? In verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. These things being those wondrous things He wants to do in our lives, His wisdom, the, the message of the cross. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And so Paul's ending his argument, this is logical argument that the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man are completely separate. And now he's saying, okay, if they're completely separate and you can't understand it, this is how you can. This is the answer. And so we see that the first function that he mentions of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit reveals what God has for us. Reveals what God has for us. As we walk in the Spirit, as we seek to listen to the Spirit, He opens up our eyes to seeing things from a godly perspective. Paul goes on, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. It doesn't say for the Spirit searches eh, a few little things here and there. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And so letter B there, Spirit searches all things. Pretty straightforward. Means he penetrates deep and completely understands. Both of those together really combat pride. Because how do we understand the things of God? Well, you know, I search through scripture and and I've I've brought it all in, and you know, with my great wisdom. No! I can't do it. The Spirit reveals it, and so I'm completely dependent on Him. So I can't claim it for myself. Along with that, 10 and 11, the Spirit fully understands God because He is God. The Spirit fully understands God because He is God. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So Paul uses an illustration. He says, okay, who knows what you're thinking? No, we get into trouble when we sort of assume what someone's thinking, right? He says, who knows what, what you're thinking? He says, only, the, only, the only way that someone could know what they're thinking is if they're your spirit, your mind, inside you. And so then he says, okay, who knows the, the thoughts of God? The Holy Spirit, because He is God. And he's setting up a logical case here of the greatness of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 12, He says, now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit is who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So he says, the Holy Spirit is God. He knows God. He understands God. And oh, by the way, 
He's been given to you when you accept Christ as your Savior. And He indwells you. So you are not alone. You are not powerless. This world cannot overcome you. It cannot overtake you because you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. So letter D there, the Holy Spirit is given to us at salvation and indwells all believers. Some other verses there, Acts 2.38, right after Pentecost or during Pentecost, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now keep in mind, we we know in Scripture that there is one Spirit and one baptism and the Holy Spirit brings unity in the church. And so Paul is reminding them, you have the Holy Spirit in you. Are you living like it? When we are discouraged, when we don't even know how to handle life, when we're struggling to see it through God's eyes and we're overwhelmed because we're seeing it through our own eyes, the Holy Spirit is indwelling us saying, God is still God. I can use this for my glory. I can work all things for my good. Even the most devastating things we go through. And so the Holy Spirit comforts and encourages. But most, mostly during that, He's illuminating us to who God is and His presence. The passage goes on. So no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, and he comes back to the comparison, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And we see the next role of the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit teaches. He gives both the words to say and the understanding to the hearer. He's on both ends of the process. If you're teaching a Sunday school class, if you're teaching in Awana, if you're just trying to share the gospel with your neighbor, the first thing we need to do is say, Holy Spirit, give me the words. Give me the words. And that we're expressing a dependence on the Holy Spirit. Have you ever been in a situation where you needed to share the gospel or you needed to share and encourage somebody with Scripture that you've just come in and say, oh, I, I don't even know what to say, but God help me. Holy Spirit, speak through me. And then we're coming up with things we didn't even know we remembered. And verses that are, are coming. That's the Holy Spirit working through you. That's exciting. Because I don't have to try to do my best to walk with God. I have to, do, I have to open myself up to the Holy Spirit empowering me to walk with God. It's not my effort and my strength. It's His I think we forget that in our efforts to fight temptation, in our efforts to walk with God. And our default is what do I have to do rather than who do I have to let work? If you're teaching, if you're ministering, part of your prep time has to be prayer. It must be prayer. This is why you... I don't come Sunday morning and just off the cuff preach through a passage. It's something that I've worked through during the week and prayed through during the week because I don't have the right words to say. 
I find myself pleading with the Holy Spirit for His words. For Him to speak. But that takes work. And it takes prep. Teaching Sunday school, you can't come Sunday morning and throw it together Sunday morning. You haven't prayed well enough. You haven't prepared well enough. And we're doing it under our own power instead of God's power at that point. Challenge you, if you're in ministry in any sort here at Village, take the time to minister through the Holy Spirit. We see is in verse 13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. He's the one that gives understanding to those that are hearing, to those that are open to his understanding. Passage goes on in 14 through 16. As Paul closes, he comes back to comparing to the natural man. And the, the last role of the Holy Spirit I have there is gives us spiritual discernment and maturity. And these are not all inclusive. We have other passages that talk about other things the Holy Spirit does. These are the things Paul mentions in just a few verses. Gives us spiritual discernment and maturity. In verse 14, the natural person, and the word for natural person is literally the one that doesn't have the Spirit. The one that doesn't even comprehend the Spirit. One author said, it's the person that just goes through life thinking the material is all there is. That's a temptation, isn't there? The natural man, the one that isn't even conscious of and asking the Spirit to work in his life, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things. And that word for judges is examines, looks at, understands with a godly perspective. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Referring to the worldly people that were criticizing Paul and some of the other speakers for just preaching the silly cross of Christ. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And he ends with that phrase, but we have the mind of Christ. And he's coming back to our mindset needs to be a spiritual mindset. We need to see things through the lens of who Christ is, what he did on the cross, and how we should live. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual discernment and maturity. Because ultimately, that's the definition of spiritual maturity, having the mind of Christ. There are so many challenges in an ungodly world that want to come in and tell us how to think and what to think about, how to evaluate things, what's important, what's not important, what's right and what's wrong, what's narrow-minded. Have the mind of Christ. That's wisdom. That's maturity. That's what God wants for us. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for the mind of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would evaluate things through the cross, through the gospel, rather than charisma. Lord, I pray that we would be seeking after wisdom that only comes from you, that we would recognize the difference between a secular worldview and a godly worldview. But Lord, most importantly, I pray you'd help us to live by your Spirit. 
that every day we wake up and say, God, help me through your Spirit live for you today. Give me the mind of Christ today. That every decision we would stop and pray and seek your wisdom. Lord, that as we do anything, we would be conscious of the fact that we are relying on you for your strength. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that you would work through this people. Lord, that as we share the gospel with our neighbors, your Holy Spirit would work through the message, not the messenger, and souls would be saved. Lord, as we go to work and make spiritual decisions and decisions of integrity, that people would notice that and notice something's different. And even if they think it's foolish, that they would ask why. Lord, give us the courage to be men and women that walk by the Spirit instead of the crowd. Lord, I pray that you would use every individual here to reach their communities for you and to disciple them for you. Lord, may we be wholly different from the world, no matter the cost. In Jesus' name, amen.